0: What does it mean for Australia to have an Asian identity? What is Australia's Asian identity? And what does it mean for Australia to be in and part of the Asian region? So I'm delighted to be joined tonight by the Honourable Tim Watts, MP, member for Gallibrand and Assistant Member uh, Assistant Minister sorry, for Foreign Affairs uh, and um Assistant Minister Watts will be uh, presenting uh, a a speech uh, to kick off our conversation tonight. We are also joined by La Trobe University's own Dr Sabrina Gupta, who is lecturer in the School of Psychology and Public Health. Thank you for joining us, Sabrina. We do have a third panellist, Alice uh, Alice Pung OAM. Uh, The OAM is for Services to Literature. She is an an award-winning author and adjunct professor in the School of Media and Communications at RMIT uh, University. Uh, Alice is running a little bit late. We're trying to, to... find where where she might be at uh, but we will begin the proceedings with a speech by Assistant Minister Watts uh, before we turn to our panel discussion so thank you.
1: Well thank you uh, Beck, and thank you to Latrobe Trobe Asia uh, for organising this event. Let me to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. Uh, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with us here today. And let me, as a member of the Albanese government, reiterate my full commitment to the implementation of the Uluru Uluru Statement from the Heart in Full, Voice, Treaty and Truth. I must admit that uh, when I saw the topic for this event uh, come into the email inbox, Uh, It brought a wry smile to my face, uh, particularly when I saw the format, um, an academic moderator at a university, three speakers. um, As someone who takes Australian identity seriously and has followed these debates for quite some time, tonight's topic and the structure of this event reminded me of John Howard's insistence in 2003 that his government had once and for all, quote, ended that long, seemingly perpetual symposium on our self-identity. We no longer navel-gaze about what it is what an Australian is. I remember that speech because Howard went so far in that speech to declare that, quote, he knew what an Australian has always been and will always be. Now, the idea that Australian identity was carved in stone by Sir Henry Parks at the time of Federation and was passed on to, on to us unchanging through the generations, is obviously a ridiculous concept to modern Australian ears. The national identity of Federation-era Australia included many characteristics that we continue to embrace today, our Westminster institutions, our egalitarian outlook, our connection with country and a sense of humour, but it also excluded fundamental parts of our modern national identity in particular, the sixty-five thousand years of continuous Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture that preceded it, and the enormous role that non-white migrants would play in enriching our national story. Thankfully, Australians no longer naval gaze. Oops. Thankfully, Australians no, Australians no longer naval gaze about the place of Indigenous Australians and migrants in our national identity. We take it for granted. But that naval gazing ended not because our national identity was cast in amber by a single prime minister, but instead because of the ability of our nation built on an open society and democratic institutions to change and to grow. In fact, in response to John Howard's election in 1996, Australia's first post-war ambassador to China, Stephen Fitzgerald, asked the deliberately provocative question at that time, Is Australia an Asian Country, in the 1997 book by the same title. His book argued that in the wake of the White Australia policy, with a new national vision from our leaders, Australia could become a unique nation that benefited from the institutional strengths of a Westminster heritage, but with a, quote, Asian dimension that gave us an independent identity that linked us and our people to the region through political ethnic, cultural and family ties. A quarter of a century later, in my view, this vision has largely been realised. Modern Australia's multicultural national identity isn't a symposium topic anymore, it's a given. And today it's generally accepted that you can't tell the story of modern Australia without telling three stories. Modern Australia is, in the words of Noel Pearson, that great Indigenous leader, the three stories that make us one as Australians. Our Indigenous heritage, the Westminster institutions that followed and the multicultural migration, particularly from our own region that flourished in recent decades. Now under the Albanese government, our foreign policy begins with this identity. It begins with who we are. We say that an authentic national identity is a source of strength for Australia's foreign policy. Australia is currently in a period of extraordinary change when our external circumstances are more complex and consequential than ever before. And as our foreign minister, Penny Wong, has put it, Australia needs to harness all elements of our national power to advance our interests when the implications of unchecked strategic competition in our region are grave. Our modern national identity is a crucial source of our national power, which more than anything else comes from our people. As a thriving multicultural society of 300 different ethnic heritages, where half of Australians are either born overseas or have a parent born overseas, we say that that diversity connects us with every corner of the world. That anyone can look to Australia from any corner of the world and see themselves reflected. And we can look within ourselves and find a commonality, a shared interest with someone in every corner of the world. This connection through diversity is particularly intense with our own region. There are over a million people in our country who were born in Southeast Asia. The number is similar for those born in South Asia and 850,000 people in North Asia. These numbers do not include those with ancestry from these regions, just the places of birth. There are nearly 1.4 million Australians who identify as having Chinese ancestry, over 780,000 with Indian ancestry. 1.2 1.2 million people who say that they speak a South Asian language at home, and another 1.2 million an East or North Asian language. Over 827,000 say they speak a Southeast Asian language at home. Hinduism is Australia's fastest growing religion. Mandarin, the most spoken language in Australian homes other than English. This is the reality of modern national identity that we experience every day in Australia but we can't take it for granted that the reality of modern Australia is seen by the rest of the world. For most of our history, the world has only heard one of the stories of Australia. And as a result, too often, outdated stereotypes of Australia as a monocultural colonial outpost prevail in the minds of our international partners. I say we're in a soft power deficit. International perceptions haven't caught up with the diverse and thriving modern reality of our country. Our identity, our Australian story, is a national asset. Noel Pearson is right when he says that our nation has an epic story, but it's only an epic, it's only a national asset when we tell all of it. To cut through the outdated stereotypes, we need to proactively project modern Australia to the world. In our foreign policy, the Albanese government is telling the world world, the whole story of Australia, the three stories that make us one. We're pursuing a First Nations foreign policy through the appointment of Australia's inaugural First Nations ambassador, Justin Mohammed, centering First Nations voices and practices in our engagement with the world, connecting us to many of the 90 countries that also have First Nations peoples and changing the way that these countries see us in the process. We're also projecting Australia's modern multicultural character to the world. Now, this requires the skills of storytelling as much as the skills of diplomacy. Extraordinary Australians like James Wan, Margaret Zhang, Jason Day, Ann Curtis-Smith, Terence Tao, Rose Park, Akira Isagawa, Cheng Wu Go and Akko Akondo are internationally recognised stars, both in their areas of expertise and throughout our region. Their individual stories are at the heart of our modern Australian identity, but we've done far too little to project this part of our national story to the world for far too long. Later this month, Sam Kerr, the best football player in the world, will represent Australia on Australian soil at a World Cup, an incredible moment for our nation. But how many people outside of Australia know that Sam's father was born in Kolkata? We need to get better at telling these stories, Australian stories, to the world. Now, a big part of that is ensuring that the diversity of our community that we experience every day is represented in the institutions of power in our nation. I'm pleased to say that the 47th parliament with the most diverse incoming cohort of MPs in our history is a good example of this progress. It was a proud moment for Australia to see MPs of Vietnamese, Chinese Malaysian, Chinese Laotian, Afghan, Tamil, Sinhalese and Kenyan Goan heritage enter our parliament at the last election and their election has made a difference to the way that we are seen by the rest of the world. It's been striking to see Senator Fatima Payman the first Australian sen- senator to regularly wear a hijab in the chamber at state dinners, conversing with Muslim heads of states. Or Zanita Masharani's MP, a Kalgoorlie mechanical engineer with Kenyan-Goan parents. Is there any story more Australian than that? As a guest of honour at the Pravasi Bharatiya Diwas Youth Convention. Or Sam Lim, MP, whose first speech was not only an incredibly powerful Australian story, but was also delivered in four languages, English, Mandarin, Hokkien, and Malay, an extraordinary speech that went viral on Malaysian Twitter, being retweeted thousands of times, including by the prime minister, and was viewed more than 1.2 million times. Or of course, Penny Wong, who has been in parliament for a bit longer than those members of the 47th parliament, but who is having an extraordinary impact as our foreign minister in the way that we are seen by the rest of the world. Just consider the impact of an Australian foreign minister being able to record a video in Malaysia speaking Bahasa Maliu, saying that Southeast Asia is quote, a region that I won't know well, it's a region that I am from. Truly a living embodiment of Australia's place as a part of our region. The Albanese government has a big agenda in our region. We know that the Indo-Pacific is being reshaped, as we speak, by demographic, economic, climactic and geographic, uh, geostrategic trends. We aren't content to be mere spectators to these trends. We want to shape them in Australia's interests. We want to support the development of a region that is peaceful, prosperous and secure, built on rules and norms, including, importantly, ASEAN centrality and the inter- and international law a region of strategic equilibrium where no country dominates and no country is dominated, a region where all nations make decisions for themselves, a region where Australia shares in the economic growth of our region through diversified trade markets. Realising these objectives will demand more of Australian institutions and their leaders than any previous generation since the Second World War. The Albanese government knows that we need to harness every dimension of Australia's national power to realise those objectives starting with our people, with our identity. Our region is a place of incredible diversity, and modern Australia reflects that diversity and connects with it. The thriving multicultural reality of modern Australia equips us with the tools of influence that we denied ourselves in the past. Australian identity has changed a lot since Federation. We've changed a lot since the era of John Howard, and for the most part, Australians are pretty relaxed and comfortable about it. We're a far greater nation as a result. The three stories that make us one as Australia is more than just an abstract idea. It's a vital national asset, a tool of national influence when Australia needs all the influence that it can get. And the Albanese government won't waste a bit of it. Thank you.
0: Thank you. I might actually um, stick with you for a minute, if that's okay. I <laughs> uh, just wanted to uh, pick up on some of the themes of, of your speech and that idea of uh, that we loop around at these conversations around Australia's relationship with Asia. And, you know, historically, it's been seen as being, you know, in a, in a bit of a liminal space. Uh, historically, uh, it has been, you know, tied to uh, what Menzies described as our great and powerful friends, uh, the UK and then. In the United States. Uh, but co- geographically, obviously, Australia is, is a part of, of Asia. And I just wanted to pick up on that idea of, you know, whether or not we have settled these debates because, you know, some of the criticisms of AUKUS uh, and, and the, the sort of the security agreement with uh, the UK and the US is that idea uh, that we've gone back to some of those comfortable relationships with our great and powerful friends and that this is a sign uh, that Australia perhaps hasn't quite abandoned the Anglosphere or its comfort with dealing with sphere countries. So I just wonder your thoughts uh, on that because AUKUS uh, is an, an important part of um, the, the, the Labor government's uh, foreign and defence policy as well. And how do you sell that in the region? Uh, how do you allay people's concerns that that's what uh, AUKUS is about?
1: Um, well, look, let me first say that uh, I think generally Australians are pretty comfortable with being Australian. You know, like I think it's a pretty juvenile sort of teenaged idea that you have to define yourself in opposition to something. You know, we can be uniquely Australian. We can have that story of the three stories that make us one, defining Australian identity, without um, you know, insulting past partners or, or 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 history um that we have in those institutions. The US um clearly is our 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 main security partner. You know, that's in our national interest. Um, you know, Penny Wong made that very clear at the press club recently, I think, in a really compelling way. Um but that doesn't mean that we can't also strike out with a a, a a unique Australian identity in our region. And when you see the diplomatic efforts of the new government, I think that's really clear. Um, you know, Penny Wong has been to every ASEAN nation um, other than Myanmar um, in the first 12 months of the government. Um, and that's a level of engagement that's reflected across the ministry. Um, You know, I frankly couldn't tote up the number of visits that we've had um, to Southeast Asian nations by ministers um, and also um, to other significant Asian partners, particularly um, to India. Um, Look, the way we talk about AUKUS in the region is um, through the frame that I was talking about earlier. We want a region where no country dominates and no country is dominated, where countries are able to make their own decisions, a region of strategic equilibrium. Our view is that that strategic equilibrium doesn't just come about. We need to build it and we need to invest in it. And one of the ways that we are investing in our own sovereignty, our own ability to make our own decisions, is investing in our defence capabilities through projects like AUKUS, uh, but also through the Defence Strategic Review. So we view that as an investment in an independent Australian Uh, decision-making capability in our own region. And that's the way that we talk about it in the region. We say that all countries need to be contributing to that strategic equilibrium, to be taking actions so that they can make decisions in their own interests. Um, This is one uh, effort that we are making ourselves. Other countries will make similar efforts.
0: Thank you. Uh, Now, Sabrina, I'd love to bring you into the the conversation. I mean, your uh, area is in healthcare, and so just wondering uh, from your perspective, what is the experience of Asian Australians in terms of accessing healthcare, and what does that tell us about uh, the modern Australian identity?
2: Yeah, sure, sure. Um, So from my research, my research has largely been based on South Asian uh, migrants here and also Arabic-speaking migrants, so we do need to keep in mind that Asia being so diverse, I, um, I won't be able to comment on all the different Asian perspectives. But based on these, what, what my research has found is that there are, two, there are two basic problems that migrants face when they come here. One is understanding or navigating the health system. Okay, so there's difficulty on, they don't know how to navigate it. Okay, so that's the first one, they don't know how to navigate. The second one is they don't want to navigate, okay? And the reasons there's different reasons for why that might be the issue. The first one is when they come to a new country and understanding a new healthcare system. It's quite quite a different health system compared to their home countries. Um, even understanding things like your GP being the first point of call, being the gateway to the health system, whereas in many Asian countries you don't need to go to a GP to access healthcare. You you can go to a specialist directly. So it's, it's understanding what pathways to take in terms of accessing healthcare. The other part when they don't want to access is often um, it could be that they've had a bad experience engaging with a health professional here or with the health system. Um, it may be that they haven't received culturally appropriate care. So, for instance, uh, when I was carrying out my study, one of the studies that I carried out, you know, talking to um People who've got diabetes, engaging with dietitians, for instance, and getting advice from a dietitian, um, and you know, getting advice that is very Western centric, and saying, you know, you need to have meat and three veggies as your dinner. But some of the participants who were of Indian background said, "Well, that's changing my identity. That's that's not what I eat. I eat rice and curry, and you're asking me to eat something that I don't eat." So it's about having culturally appropriate care um, and understanding what the needs of um, your population are. And, And it's our duty to care for them. They are our citizens. They are people who live in this country. How can we better cater to them? How can we provide health services that are really tailored and targeted towards their needs?
0: So just picking up on that, I mean, in terms of your research, what are some of the recommendations that you offer in this area? I mean, how, how, how can um, healthcare providers deliver that more culturally appropriate care? Is this a training issue or is this, you know, what are the sorts of solutions uh, for, 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 for these sorts of issues?
2: Yeah, yeah. So training for sure, definitely having more cultural competence um, in, and that's a key, that's a buzzword that's been used around, you know, having cultural competency training and, and so forth. But can one ever be totally culturally competent in a specific culture? It's it's an ongoing process. It's uh, like I I I come from an Indian background. Uh, I've been in Australia for over 20 years. I was born in Canada, so I've been you know I've I've been exposed to many different cultures. But I cannot say that I'm totally competent in any of those one particular cultures because. You're always learning. Life is a learning, ongoing learning process. So when we say competency, it means ongoing learning, having that continuous dialogue with the community, continuous immersion of yourself and and having your mind open, having an open mindset to learning. How do we engage with them? Having that dialogue, having um, humility, asking questions. How do you want us to engage with you? What do you want? Um, and, And then that's when you develop the trust. And if you have trust with your community, with the individuals that you're engaging with, that's when you're able to provide really responsive care because you are catering to their needs.
0: So I might just, um, Tim, go back um, to, to some of those broader themes of, of foreign policy. I mean, one of the other enduring challenges I think with Australian foreign and defence policy is that idea of uh, pursuing security with Asia or pursuing security from Asia. And it seems like one of the um, issues I think with the, the debates uh, in, in national security in Australia at the moment is that they're very cented. They've been very centred on one country in Asia in particular, uh, and that is. China. Uh, And so I'm wondering, uh, wanting to get your perspectives on how Australia manages this quite complex uh, relationship. It seems like the Labor government uh, has taken uh, an approach that's toned down some of that uh, sort of harsher rhetoric of um, the Morrison government. That seems to have been uh, electorally quite successful if we look at um, the, the seats that changed, some of the seats that changed hands in the the 2022 uh, federal election. Uh, So what are your thoughts on how Australia can manage this increasingly complicated relationship with a partner uh, that is, you know, continues to be of significant importance to Australia?
1: Well, Australia's relationship with China is complex and and it's consequential. Um, So on on coming to government, uh, we made the point that um, this is a relationship that. Uh, isn't going anywhere, you know, it's going to remain very significant in an economic sense and have a significant weight in our region. So we've said that we will engage with China in the national interest. That means cooperating where we can. Um, Health policy, for example, might be an area of potential cooperation, climate policy, Um, but we'll continue to disagree where we must um, on issues like human rights, certain consular issues that we have um, and the trade blockages that we've been experiencing with China in recent years. Um, we have said that though where we will disagree, we'll do so calmly and consistently. And I think that's something that we've been very disciplined in doing in the last 12 months. Um, there have been developments in the relationship in that time, um, the most significant of which is that we've started talking again. That's a good thing that um, at the trade minister level, at the foreign minister level, at the leader level, Australia and China are talking again. You know, discourse, discussion, I think is is inherently a positive thing. Now, does that mean that we are going back to the way the relationship was 10 years? No. Um, But we do think that it is in the interest of both countries to stabilise the relationship. And we have been taking steps towards stabilising the relationship in recent times. um, And there are more steps to go to realise a a stabilised state.
0: And I couldn't agree with you more on the importance of soft power um, and the importance of telling those stories. you know, internationally about uh, who Australia is, what modern Australia looks like. But I'm wondering, I mean, are there constraints in what DFAT can do in terms of of soft power? Do we need more investment in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in order to prioritise things like soft power?
1: Well, well, funny you should say that, because there is more investment in DFAT coming through the last budget. And um, if you look at the, the focus areas of that investment. So, you know, DFAT has been undertaking a capability review about the kinds of uh, uh, capabilities that it needs to be influential on Australia's behalf moving forward. Um, and the last budget saw a number of investments in uh, instruments of that influence, one of which is in strategic communications. Um, that will take a number of different facets. But, you know, there, there are interesting examples of that. You know, you've got to meet audiences where they are um, and in our region, our region is a young region. If we want to speak to young audiences, we've got to speak to them on the platforms where they are existing. Um, I saw one good example recently. I was in uh, Thailand on one of the many Southeast Asian visits we've had in the last 12 months. Um, at, at the time, the Blackpink concert was coming through town, which was a rather more significant event than my visit. Um, and, our, uh, our, and they were very excited because one of the members of Blackpink has Thai heritage. Um, but our ambassador was using that, her- that, uh, that inherent interest in that visit to say, hey, there is a, a, a member of Blackpink with Thai heritage. There's also a member with Australian heritage, uh, Rosé. Um, and she's so Australian that she was actually born in New Zealand.
0: <laughs> there
1: is nothing more Australian than us stealing a product of New Zealand and claiming it as our own. Um, but if you if you listen to her in any of the documentaries, there is a distinctive Australian twang. Um, anyway, our ambassador in Thailand tweeted out a welcome to Rosé coming to Thailand and flagging that, saying, hey, This is part of a modern Australian identity. So when I say projecting modern Australia, they're the kinds of things I'm talking about, you know, knowing that diversity, putting a spotlight on it, meeting audiences where they are, telling that story so that we can change perceptions, change those outdated stereotypes of what it means to be Australian.
0: Thank you. Uh, Now, we will have plenty of time for Q&A, so both for our audiences online and for those of you who are in the room tonight. Uh, But I wanted to turn to you, Sabrina. I mean, not only do you have uh, expertise in in public health, but you also have expertise in the international student experience. And I think educational exchange uh, is a really important part of Australia's relations with other countries in Asia. So could you give us your perspective on how that feeds into these questions of of the modern uh, Australian-Asian identity?
2: Sure. Um, So some of the research that we've carried out has been with South Asian uh, international students uh, here in Australia, but we've also done a comparison with uh, South Asians in UK as well. Um, A lot of the South Asians who are coming to Australia are doing a two-step migration pathway uh, process. What that means is that when they they come here for their education, hope to secure some employment and then also apply for permanent residency and so have it as a, as a pathway that they can then become Australian citizens in the long term. What it means for us is that we do have a skill gap and we are training these international students with, with skills and knowledge that we are, you know, it's Australian context and we are providing that to those students who can then in the future fill that gap here in Australia if they intend to stay. Most South Asian students, when when we carried out the research, said that they want to stay. But there is other research that says that um, those who are from a Chinese background prefer to go back home. So when they finish off their education, their preference is to go back home. Um, In some cases, they say they'd like to go to a third country as well. So it could be, you know, United States or UK or Canada or any other Western nation. Um, But I guess guess the main thing for us is that our future, you know, the 10 years later, five years, 10 years later, when these students are now going to be taking up Australian citizenship, it means that they have that skill set that we have given them, that knowledge that we have been providing them through Australian universities, but also that they're bringing their cultural knowledge from back home. And they know how to engage with, you know, if they're working in healthcare, they have that tacit knowledge, they have that knowledge from back home on how to engage with people from backgrounds that they come from, but also have that Australian contextual knowledge, knowledge that can support our
0: communities as well. Fascinating. Um, so I might open it up. Do we have any questions in the room? Hi uh, Yes, I was just
3: interested in knowing um, with the Indian students, what sector of um, education are they most likely to pursue um like where is the gap being filled is it say engineering medical law or-
2: i think that's a changing space so depending on what the demands are for australia that 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 list that students have or the occupations in demand is often a changing list depending on what the skills are at the moment health has been quite on top in demand community services uh, health in terms of mental health as well um, I know student. there's a lot of uh, international students taking IT-related courses and business-related courses as well. And this is talking from the LaTrobe and and anecdotally what I know about the other um, wider universities in Victoria as well. So those are the key sort of fields, health, IT, um, and and perhaps business as well.
0: Thank you for your sharing. And uh, I'm, my name is Leo, and I'm one of the students here doing Master's uh, an international relation. My question is, uh, how can Australia play play a role to help with you know making the br- bridging the culture and also societal kind of uh kind of connections? Since you know we are, uh, I feel like we are can kind of, uh uh because uh, I'm an international student, so I feel like we are a Western country, but we are kind of like located in Asia and also have a very unique kind of structure.
2: There's a, there's a few ways that that could be done, mostly through supports that institutions can provide and and broader as well in terms of um, external organisations such as WICWISE or Study Melbourne and all what supports they can provide. What we found, for instance, one of the gaps was international students said that career services that are offered at universities are often very generic and they're not tailored to the needs of international students. They're more tailored towards domestic students. So, how do you navigate the employment space? How do you know where to apply for jobs? What do you need to do? How do you start networking? Where do you start that? And so, that was a gap that we did pick up on. And since then, we have started developing workshops where which are very um, career development focused, supporting international students on visualising their career map, what steps they need to take. So, having targeted services that support international students and not really having generic um, focus.
0: Maybe at the, at the more international level, there's, there's a question there about um, how to kind of uh, promote uh, understanding between Australia. Is, so how do, we, how do we promote greater uh, understanding between Australia and other countries in Asia? I mean, one of the, the things um, that, that uh, has been discussed is the idea of uh, a national sort of language policy or being able to um, encourage Asian studies uh, within universities uh, and sort of Asian literacy, uh, if you like. So I think if I understand the question, it's about building those bridges at a at a people to people level, but also at an international level. Well,
1: look, let, let me speak from my perspective as a, a, a assistant minister for foreign affairs. Oh. I see it every day in the countries that I visit as an Australian, the impact that our university and our world-class higher education sector has on those people-to-people connections. Um, Let me give you one example. Um, I was in Nepal um, six weeks ago. Now, Nepal is our third largest uh, international market for higher education students. You go to Kathmandu, you can't see a single sphere of society there that there hasn't been an imprint of Australia. There isn't a connection of Australia to that sector and they're the australian alumni who study in australia and return to the home country um, you know they are the the members of parliament they're the secretaries of departments they're the surgeons they're the biochemists um, everywhere i went you met someone who either studied in australia worked in yeah. australia had a family member of australia, in australia and the the depth of understanding and knowledge from those people they're some of our best ambassadors um, I met two Nawari cooks over there who'd learnt their trade um, in Sydney, and had opened a high-end uh, Newari cuisine restaurant in Kathmandu that was also serving pavlova and all kinds of Australian-influenced things. They had Australian flags on their on their chefs' uniforms. Um, passionate ambassadors, and I see that everywhere I go. Um, I was in Bhutan on that visit as well. Both the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister and Australian alumni. Um, half of the cabinet has studied in um, Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, everywhere you go in Bangladesh, we had a reception of dozens and dozens of people across all strata of society. um so I think it's it's leveraging um, and scaling up those people to people connections, putting a spotlight on them, building a network around them. We have a grants program for Australian alumni where they can access you know, small grants for projects that they're working on to sort of increase the impact. And I think those little investments go a really long way in, you know, promoting um, modern Australian identity around the world.
0: Well Alice it's um it's great to to have you here. Um, pleasure, pleasure to be here Beck. <laughs> I, mean, I introduced you earlier and I said that you were you were on your way but it, um it's a great opportunity to sort of bring you into the conversation here to talk about sort of culture and and literacy and the um literature and the role that um that plays in you know, how we understand a modern Australian Asian identity. But uh, you've participated in uh, La Trobe Asia events before, particularly um, around growing up Asian in Australia and reflecting um, on your work with that anthology and your experiences. What do you think Australia's modern Asian identity looks like?
4: Oh, I think it's a wonderful identity. So I've been writing for about 20 years um, as a published writer and when I first came to, um, you know, when my first book came out, I was um, one of the few Asian Australians at writers' festivals and it was quite lonely. Um, and so I did this anthology called Growing Up Asian in Australia where I found 50 um, wonderful contributors from all around Australia to tell their stories. Some were filmmakers, some were rock musicians, some were politicians. Uh, Some were artists, some were doctors, from every walk of life, a mental health nurse. And um, last year, one of the contributors is now a very well-known comedian and um, playwright. Diane Nguyen made one of my books um, into a play. But I was on a panel with her and she said something that really resonated with me. She said that she used to be really proud to be the only Asian Australian in the room. Um, in events, she used to think, oh, I've really made it now in Australian society, I'm the only Asian, I've made it. And then she realised how lonely it was and how the roles that she was assigned were stereotypical, um, not very three-dimensional, and she thought, no, we we need other Asian Australians in the arts industry um, so that diverse stories don't just become a a buzzword to fulfil the quota, that they're really truly diverse Um, And so that's what it means for me. And we have Asian-Australian authors and artists writing every genre now, whereas back 20 years ago, um, if you didn't have a memoir, it was very hard to get published. (laughs) So
0: things have been uh, wonderful. Things are flourishing so um so what has changed that has meant that there is greater representation in terms of um Asian Australian authors was there is there a particular set of things that that happened that has enabled that and what needs to happen to you know to 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 make things even better in that space Oh, well, I I
4: guess two things. So generous Asian Australian artists who support other younger um, or emergent Asian Australian artists. But the other thing um, which we don't give enough credit for is, or, you know, we like to make fun of this, but the American influence on our culture is enormous and Americans, um, when I was in America um, doing a residency there, they were about 50 years ahead of us back then when I was there. They had whole Asian American studies departments in their universities. So in terms of um, identity and in terms of fostering diverse voices and in terms of um, diverse storytelling, we have been influenced by what's happening there. Um, that they, They've got, you know, they had a civil rights movement with Asian Americans uh, before we ever did. Mm. And so when COVID hit us, it, it was a bit of a shock suddenly, because in the 1980s, during multiculturalism, we're encouraged. Um, it was a really well-intentioned policy to identify as maybe Chinese, Cambodian, Australian, Malaysian, Australian, Hong Kong, Australian, to um, really uh, have our unique identities flourish. We didn't have this collective identity. So suddenly Vietnamese Australians who are being spat at and being called, you know, (laughs) coronavirus carriers um, or (laughs) we really um, felt a, a, a need You know, we felt there was something that united us
0: that way. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so we have some questions coming through online. Thank you for those. I'll, I'll ask this one. Um, the emphasis on what Australia needs often comes at the cost of the humanities and arts expertise, which is critical in terms of ethos and understanding of any place. The decimation of Asian studies and Asian-Australia uh, diaspora as method needs to be reversed. How can the university sector address this lack? I'm not sure who wants to pick up that question. Um, Thank you. Uh, probably me. <laughs> I'm happy to field this one. Uh, uh, look, and, and I mentioned uh, it before. I mean, I think what we are missing in Australia is a, uh, a national language languages policy. Uh, there was a report released by um, the Asian Studies Association of Australia um, a few months ago that re- like did a really thorough um, recording of, of the decline in uh, Australia. Australia's Asia language competency. So uh, there's been a number of languages uh, at universities that have been closed, sadly, and the reason for that uh, is enrolment numbers. Uh, that there, there just isn't uh, the demand uh, for uh, what we would consider to be critical uh, languages uh, that that we want more students to be um, to, to, to be uh, undertaking at universities. So uh, that report... Um, um, has makes a number of recommendations around what needs to to happen, particularly in in sort of the long term um, planning or strategy around uh, getting students. Uh, in tertiary education, but before tertiary, this is really something that starts before, you know, but by the time students make it to, to sort of first-year undergraduate, they've already made up their mind about whether or not they're, they're going to uh, undertake a, a language. Uh, but it's not just about languages, it's about um, Asian studies more generally, and and the, the problem for universities uh, is, again, with that, that issue of demand, uh, but also uh, we, Australia did have a, a a, language, a national strategic language policy, uh, but this is something I think uh, would be worthwhile uh, revisiting. But I would also add, um, you know, talking about the people-to-people links, what Australia does have uh, is the new Colombo Plan, uh, which is another, you know, a really good opportunity for students to uh, to go out uh, into the region across the Indo-Pacific, not just Asia, but across the Indo-Pacific, uh, and to have these really rich experiences uh, and to be able to have those sort of um, intercultural connections, and and to that they are probably a bad way of putting it, but they they are kind of um, soft power that they carry some of this. So, the students carry some of this soft power with them when when they go on exchange. But can I just
4: ask why do you think the demand in Asian studies and languages has declined? That's really fascinating. I didn't realise that was happening.
0: Yeah so um there's there's a few things one is the as, as I mentioned the, the 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 pressures on on universities in terms of enrolment uh has has kind of um made it i guess difficult to maintain some of those languages i think there's a dip uh more generally in arts and humanities and asian studies is part of that um general uh decline uh, and you know a, a part of it i think is that um some of these subjects might be seen as a bit of an indulgence like you know like people uh, students want to know that they're going to have a job at the end of it and uh, arts degrees have a bit of a, a marketing issue i've seen this in open days myself where parents are like well what what job can they get at the end of this degree? and what's that well actually I, i'm am an arts graduate, I've got a fabulous job <laughs> uh, yeah, lots of there's lots of things that, that arts students could do, but it's got a bit of a, a marketing problem. I think Asian studies is part of a broader decline. but as you say I mean do, do, do you have some thoughts on this question?
4: Oh no, but I did do um, a lot of Asian studies subjects in my arts degree. It was the best thing I ever did. Um, It was what got me into writing because I didn't realise I had this unique identity that I could tap upon in my writing if I had not done a lot of political science and sociology subjects in, um, you know, colonialism, Southeast Asian studies, um, you know, the history of modern China. so. It, I, I really encourage people to study the arts.
0: <laughs> well, I do too, <laughs>
5: and
0: I think it, I think partly it is about you know the, the arts and the humanities sector going out there and saying here's what we offer, and you know uh, um, I
5: couldn't agree with you more. But we have a question here. Hi, I'm Supriya, and I'm an adjunct professor at the Department of Social Inquiry here. I think um, you're right in terms of the census. We are a multicultural nation. And when you look at our streets, like Brunswick Street, we have multicultural food. It's very difficult to get a roast and three vegetables, right, on (laughs) Brunswick Street. But I think what has remained absolutely stuck in Australia is that the idea of an educated person is a person who is educated in English. You know, most of us from different parts of the world grew up knowing three or four languages because you had to. You didn't see yourself as a linguist. Here people can boast that they only know one language. I'll give you a small indication. I I belong to a book club for 30 years. And recently I found myself getting very cantankerous one of my friends said, we must study a classic. And before thinking, I said, who's classic? (laughs) If I didn't know Shakespeare, I would have been seen as ignorant. Most of the very educated women in my book club don't know the Mahabharata or the Ramayana, and they don't apologize for it. So I think unless... We see the ideal of an educated person to be educated in cultures, at least one other than their own. I mean, I am not educated, say, in South Sudanese culture, right? But I do know Malaysian, I do know Chinese, and I do know the English. And I know the Indian, and I might know a little bit of the Pakistani but how can you be educated just knowing one language and one culture?
0: Thank you. Um, I might. Uh, we've, we've got some other questions. So I might take a round. Oh, did you want to go I into mean, that one? I now? think yep. just
1: briefly on that, it, it, it's, it's a point well made, but I think across Australia we're making uneven progress on that front. So the electorate that I represent, that Alice grew up in at, at some point, um, you know, two-thirds of my voters are either born overseas or have a parent born overseas. And the diversity that we live manifests in a lot of ways that haven't caught up to the institutions. So amongst my staff, there'd be half a dozen different languages spoken. None of them were studied formally um, anywhere. Um, at the schools that my kids go to, um, the the uh, the diversity, I mean, like what, ten, more than 10% of my voters are born in India, um, uh, about the same born in, in China broadly, about the same born in Southeast Asia. Um, and what that means is that the day-to-day life of our community is one of cultural diversity. You know, there's that that constant sore of saying, do we say season's greetings or do we say Merry Christmas? I always say, like, we say Merry Christmas in my electorate because we also say Ramadan Mubarak. We also say uh, we celebrate Holi. We also um, celebrate the Buddha's birthday. And, like, that diversity is something that we come together to celebrate. And so my kids see that as normal. You know, my kids see... Iftar as normal, my kids see holy as normal, um, and I think that is flowing through at a generational level in our country. Um, it hasn't flown all the way through to our institution as a power. And if I can be frank, our universities are one of the slowest changing places, particularly at the leadership level. The levels of diversity and the representation at leadership level in universities is worse than politics. It's worse than business. Quite extraordinary. Um, but as I say. The last Australian Parliament, that last election, the breakthrough of the diversity that we've seen is just so enriching. And I would say the majority of the new MPs elected in the Labor government last election were either of a multicultural background or an uh, Indigenous Australian background. Um, it was an electoral asset, a competitive asset for us. It helped us win the election. And I think mm. that, again, sort of reinforces the positive incentives to embrace this and to to understand the new modern Australia.
0: Thank you. Um, I, we've got some questions up here,
6: Twan. Thanks, Bec. Um, Twan Nguyen, partner at Norton Rose Fulbright. Um, so in my work, I um, represent clients, um, Australian corporates who look to expand into Asia and build their relationships economically with Asia. Um, one of the big themes that I've heard um, from these businesses is we understand the, we live at, that Australia is a multicultural Community, um, we have a diverse um, range of skills and talents, and language—you know, individuals who speak languages and understand cultures—but we have trouble accessing those channels, so the diaspora channels here in Australia to support um, our um, our strategies going into Asia. Um, I think part of that is there is still a need for representation in leadership within the business sector, um, seeing more culturally diverse leaders in um, in business. Um, my question to the panel is, you know, what um what can be done to help support greater representation of cultural cultural diversity in leadership? Um and 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 probably one to Tim, what does the government have a role in supporting businesses to um, um, you know to, to access that diaspora and to um and to promote greater representation of diverse diversity in leadership?
1: Um like absolutely the government has a role. Um a few ways one is by saying that it matters by making the case um, and by modeling it um, one of the first things that i did in coming into uh my role was meet with the called network inside DFAT to hear from them about their experience uh in my own department um their uh, career progression aspirations the, the barriers that they're encountering the opportunities that they're encountering um, and so across the public service um uh, Minister Gallagher is leading a, uh, a diversity uh, a initiative for the Australian Public Service Commission. That will be reporting uh, later this year with specific initiatives. Um, but within DFAT, you know, there's been unconscious bias training, there's diversity on hiring panels, um, you know, all of those sort of nuts and bolts initiatives. But I really think that the, the most important thing a government can do an important thing that leaders can do is say that it matters, <laughs> model the right behaviour and measure progress. And increasingly, we are seeing that um, across government, um, business uneven, um, other aspects of our society uneven. But if you're not getting with the program on this, um, you're going to be left behind.
2: A couple of things that the international students told us when we uh, engaged with them in the research was they wanted more mentorship. So they wanted to hear more from leaders who were from similar backgrounds to themselves or um you know from diverse multicultural backgrounds. How did they get there? What were the steps that they took? Um, a lot of the students who come here don't have that social support, those networks here. They don't know they don't have the mom and dads here. It's a new country. They're navigating multiple systems at the same time, the education system, the health system if they're sick, you know, housing, getting a place on rent. There's so many, you know, different ways of that they need to adjust to a new country. But then employment is another area. It's like, how do we get the first step in? How do we network? And they are already hesitant, English not being the first language. It's, it's you know, that giving them that confidence that, yes, you can. And so mentoring was one thing that they suggested. Can we hear more from them? Can we get organizations that actually give opportunities to international students, regardless of what their visa status is? Because often it's like, oh, no, you don't have a, permanent residency, you can't, we can't give you internship or we can't give you those um, you know, chances to to carry out work experience, for instance. So those systemic barriers must be addressed in a way to help um allow these students or or even new migrants, not necessarily students, in getting those um first breaks as well.
0: I might stay with you for the minute, Sabrina, because we've got a question um, from one of our online audience members and it's about um, uh, international students from China. At the start of the uh, Sino-Australian trade war, China encouraged international students to seek higher education elsewhere due to alleged experiences uh, of racism against Chinese students in Australia. International students are returning to Australia at lower rates than expected. Do you think that uh, the rhetoric around China um, within Australian educational settings has impacted the broader Asian student market
2: Yes, possibly it has um, you know if If I was a parent sending my child to another country and i've and i felt that you know this my child's going to face racism, that would have an impact on whether i'd feel secure or safe enough to send my my child but in recent recent months, uh, we have seen an increase in more international students coming, and um, I think Tim, there was you, you talked about you know when you went to Nepal, talk it word of mouth really matters, mm. and um, when you have more students coming and sharing their experiences here, and many are actually positive experiences of being in Australia, of you know being a success story as well, finding those opportunities that they've come for, when they go back home or when they share that with the families. Or, and that, that mode of communication is really, really important for quite a few migrant families. Those channels of communication are quite important. Having that trust within the community, having that dialogue within the community, and I think that will bring our, our numbers back up and hopefully it does stay safe and we don't face that type of racism that uh, our students did face in the past.
0: Kim, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay, I think we had one more question here. (laughs) Uh Um, I just wanted to
3: comment and then perhaps ask your input. Um, My understanding is that Chinese students um, go back home after they graduate um, and are more into the business side of things. So when COVID hit, they went back and did not enroll online to an Australian institution because the whole idea of coming here is to um, uh, live within the culture and get to know how Australians are and therefore go back home and then are able to do business with Australia. So it comes back to what Tim was saying about that soft power. Um, So, uh, yes, I just wanted to find out if... You know, that is what your findings have been and also whether um, um, Chinese um, students are not really that concerned about racism because they've got a larger goal um, and they're also more, they already embody their culture and language and everything else from their family back home. So they're just wanting to go back and then get a great job where they can do business with Australia.
2: Yeah. So I haven't really conducted much research with Chinese background students, but from, from what I know, um, we did have a gap during COVID time when we had much lower numbers of Chinese uh, students here. I know recently that number has started to pick up a bit more, um, but the intention that I've heard anecdotally is that they still want to go back home, share the knowledge. And, of course, the idea of coming here as an international student is not only about education but, as you said, experiencing Australia, experiencing that that life, um, being immersed in that culture and taking those learnings back home as well. I think that's a watch-and-see space and whether we are going to have more Chinese students. When it comes to racism, I think racism impacts anyone at any level um and at an individual level and at a community level that does have an impact regardless of how connected one may be with their family, with their community, it, it has a quite quite a severe impact um at many levels.
4: Oh can I answer this? Just because um I've lived um and worked with Chinese students Uh, for 20 years so i actually have an unusual arrangement i live with my family at a college at the university of melbourne called janet clark hall Um, and in my experience over 20 years we have had a lot of chinese students come through and we've had students from singapore and malaysia and um, of chinese background and i found perhaps because we're a smaller college Um, Our Chinese students don't meet the stereotype of, you know, extremely wealthy Asians. They might come from uh, rural provinces. They might be the only child. Often in all cases they are the only child where the parents have invested um, all this money in that one child to be educated here. So the the children who um, get educated perhaps as doctors, uh, will stay here uh, because they've done their training here. But during COVID, you know, one, one of the students I was quite close to, she had graduated from an education degree and she faced enormous hardship getting a job here. And she wasn't sure whether it was her accent, whether it was the fact that she had a Chinese surname. And I found it baffling because we, had a, we have a shortage of teachers. So She got a lot of emergency work. Um, and then it was too lonely and too depressing and there was no community around her because you talked about the need for community. So she went back home and is now a um, primary school teacher in Shanghai. And over the years, I've seen this happen quite a bit, that you're very well supported when you're at university, especially in a college and then when you're by yourself, um, especially as an only child, it's, it's really quite alienating to find a community and then to find um, a society and a workplace that will support you. Um, and a lot of the cases we lose some of our best students, um, not the medical students, because they stay here. The training um, enables them and encourages them to stay here. But it, all the other professions, it's really difficult, isn't it?
0: Uh, look, I'm afraid that we are actually out of time. Uh, I realise that there are a few questions that we weren't able to get to that came uh, online. So I would like to thank our um, our audience members who who uh, zoomed in this evening, and I would also like to thank uh, all of you who joined us uh, in person uh, tonight. And especially like to thank uh, our panelists, Alice, Tim, and Sabrina. This has been a really uh, excellent, rich discussion. Uh, I'm sure that we could um, talk much more about these important issues but it is a Friday night so uh, it's time to start your weekend but um, please do follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list uh, if you haven't already done so to find more details for events and Latrobe Asia publications. Enjoy uh, your weekend. Thank you for coming.